Thank you for downloading the Kol Hadash podcast. In this episode, Rabbi Shalom leads a discussion on the concept of heroes as part of our Sunday School for Adults series. When we think about Hanukkah, of course, the major figures are the Maccabees. But the dilemma in considering the Maccabees is that they're not the ideal heroes that you'd like to use as your poster children for um, Jewish identity or simply the what's become a very important holiday in the Jewish calendar. Um, that was even the case when the rabbis inherited the holiday of Hanukkah. They didn't want the Maccabees to be the heroes either because they felt like the Maccabees had themselves become Hellenized even as they had fought Hellenization initially. Um, they felt that the Maccabees had betrayed Jewish tradition by naming themselves to be high priests when they weren't from the high priestly family or by calling themselves kings when they weren't from the family of King David. So they didn't like the Maccabees. Even more importantly, after the destruction of the temple in the first century of the Common Era, they wanted to minimize Jewish militarism because they thought it was dangerous, as it had proven to be. So that's when the story of the Miracle of the Lights first appears. It doesn't show up in any of the Maccabees books. It doesn't show up in the book of the historian Josephus, who, knew, who lived within a couple hundred years of the Maccabees and wrote about them with archival material that we don't have now. The story of the Miracle of the Lights only shows up in the Talmud, which is from sometime between 200 and 500 CE. So now we're talking three to four to 500 years after the Maccabees. So we can say, first of all, the Miracle of the Lights story is a story but not history, because it shows up so late in the records of the holiday. But secondly, it's a very clever reworking of the holiday to change who the hero is. When the Maccabees rededicate the temple, the hero, the most important role, is played by the Maccabees. When it's the miracle of the light story, who's the most important character? Well, obviously, the author of the miracle. That's the point of the holiday. In fact, the question that's asked in the uh, commentary is, why do we celebrate Hanukkah? And the answer given is, well, when the Maccabees rededicated the temple, there was a miracle of lights. That's why we celebrate it. So, the Maccabees have not been (coughs) attractive heroes for the rabbis, and that covered a long period of time in Jewish life. It was only at the beginning of the 20th century and in the 19th century the Maccabees get, quote, resurrected as heroes for two basic reasons. One is, um, we'll call it Jewish compensatory ego in Western culture, where Christmas has become this huge event and Jews need some kind of parallel uh, compensation, you know, just getting socks for seven or eight days, it just does not compare. Uh, what a bargain. You know, what a bargain. I know, I know. Well, that's right. Compared to the Xbox, it just does not uh, measure up. So that was one reason. And the other major reason was a new movement in Jewish life that actually liked militarism and a Jewish national identity and creating a Jewish state as the Maccabees had done it was called the Zionist movement and so the Maccabees became a very important symbol for them that was the last time there was an independent Jewish state that was based on Hebrew and Jewish culture that was a way of breaking away from the assimilationist trend of the outside world and asserting a strong Jewish identity but also on some level was <laughs> independent of rabbinic authority because it was before the rabbis were even around. And so they took the Maccabee story in Hanukkah and made it one of their major events. Uh, 
the largest, most successful basketball team in Israel is called Maccabi Tel Aviv, and they're the World Maccabi Games, which are based on a kind of uh, strong Jewish identity, not just by emotional attachment, but actually by physical strength and athletic performance. Um, one of the early Zionist thinkers who was very secular, his name was Max Nordau, um, he was sort of a partner of uh, Theodor Herzl, uh, wrote about what he called Muskeljuntum, which means muscular Jews, <laughs> strong Jews. And they often would contrast the muscular new Jew with the weak old Jew of the old country, and they were the, the uh, new birth of uh, Jewish peoplehood and uh, strength. For some reason, the new Jew was always blonde, too. I don't know quite how that maps out. It's a whole other topic. Um, like but the Daniel Mac- Craig. Like what? Like Daniel Craig, right. So, uh, he's played two Jews, actually, in his uh, film mm-hmm. career. Um, so, the Maccabees got resurrected as heroes, so to speak. So now, we in humanistic Judaism look at the Maccabees, and we have to decide, are they good or bad? Well, we don't object to them the way the rabbis did, because who cares if they called themselves kings, whether they were in the family of David or not. We actually like the fact that they Hellenized, since we ourselves are very Hellenized. Um, in our acculturation of the surrounding world. The nationalism side, well, the idea of having a Jewish state, in theory, sounds great. Uh, The challenge is that sometimes as it's played out in practice, there are complications that were either unforeseen or not planned for sufficiently. Uh, We don't have to get into that in great depth today. But the most important issue is what the Maccabees did once they were in charge. You see, the Maccabean Rebellion wasn't simply fighting against the outside world of Greek culture. It was fighting against the inside group of Jews who liked Greek culture. It was as much a civil war between Hellenized Jews and more traditional good old-time religion Jews as it was between the Jewish community and the outside world. And the Maccabees were clearly on the fundamentalist, traditionalist, absolutist side of that ledger. And we would be on the other side. So much so that after they became kings and established their kingdom, they then went out and conquered some other territories. And when they conquered other territories, they assimilated those people to Judaism by forcibly converting them, which for men included circumcision. And so traveling around, forcibly converting other people, is not really our model of a Jewish hero. (laughs) So that was certainly a complication. The irony at the end of the story, of course, is that the Maccabees themselves, as a royal house, are wiped out by the, ch- I think the grandchild of one of those forcible converts. His name is King Herod. And he wipes out the Maccabean dynasty to cement his own dynasty. Um, the irony is that he came from one of those forcible converts from a couple generations before. So the reason why I'm talking about the Maccabees in the context of choosing heroes is Today I was going to review our fourth and fifth grade curriculum on heroes and choices. How do we choose our heroes and what choices do our heroes make that either confirm or complicate their status as someone that we would choose as a role model. Now it's appropriate that we put the class at that age because if they've joined in kindergarten and gone all the way through the school, they've gotten a good grounding in Jewish holidays, in Jewish life cycle events in the second and third grade class, in uh, Jewish literature, in the early stories in the Bible, and now they're getting to an age where they're beginning to ask questions about who am I, and what are my choices? You know, they're beginning, I mean, look, my five-year-old is making independent choices from time to time, but not in any degree like this is going to be the case as she gets older, 
And this is also a good introduction to what we're going to do through our Barnabas Mr. process, which I'll talk about in a moment. So how do we choose our heroes today? All too often, we rely on the standards that are exemplified by the Adam Sandler Hanukkah song. What makes people worthy of mention in his song? Is it their wonderful, loving treatment of their family? Is it their cures for cancer? I don't think Jonas Salk made it into the, uh, uh, into the Hanukkah song, either version A or version B. What puts you in the Adam Sandler Hanukkah song is celebrity. It might not even be a conscious attachment to one's Jewish identity. But he says it clearly at the beginning of the first song. If you're the kid that feels alone because you don't have a Christmas tree, think about all these famous people who are Jewish and they'll make you feel better. Again, it's a kind of ego compensation, but it's also a kind of celebrity worship. And that's the risk of doing a curriculum based on Jewish heroes. Is it just a list of famous Jews? Or are we using a criteria that's a little more complicated? Or are we complicating what it means to have a hero? After all, when you put someone on a pedestal, you get to look at them from every angle. Or I guess if you do a full body scan. Um, <laughs> you get to look at them from every angle. And you see the good and you see the not so good. And that may be people's objection to the full body scans. Is they don't want to be seen from that angle. Um, but in any case, that's... Let's not go there. Will <laughs> well, I went through one recently. See, yeah. The thing is, I didn't, I didn't see what they saw, so I have, I have no idea what they saw to be embarrassed about. Well, it can be transmitted, so... What? It can be transmitted now, so... Yeah, I know. It's Suppos on the internet. Supposedly it's on the internet, right? Well, if it's not attached to my name, then very few people... would make waiting in the airport more fun if they had, like, the screenings where you got to watch people... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would be... Closed-circuit TV, yeah. Okay. Now, some of you are aware that there's a new museum that opened up uh, in Philadelphia recently, the um, Museum of American Jewish History, something like that. And I've actually thought about the idea of maybe doing a congregational trip to Philadelphia to see the museum and see sites of uh, Jewish Philadelphia. For example, there's a Frank, like, Frank Lloyd Wright Design Synagogue in Philadelphia that would be interesting to see. In any case, we may do that at some point. But in the museum, there is a Jewish Hall of Fame. And some of the choices were made by the museum staff, and some of the choices were made by internet voting. And I got lots and lots of emails from people saying, vote for this person, vote for that person, vote for this person. <laughs> I voted for Sherwin Ryan, I think, five times. But <laughs> you were allowed to vote multiple times. It was a Chicago election. So, uh, you know, they chose people as the most important figures in American Jewish history. But again, is it their impact on Jewish life, or is it Steven Spielberg, is it... Adam Sandler, is it their famousness that makes them worthy of being in that place? But doesn't that allow us to relate to other Jews from a more secular, as a common yes. experience that somebody from the state of Washington that I've never met, I share a connection with because I've got, you know, we're both Jewish and we, all, we also know that there are these famous people. Right. I mean, and, and it is very much a kind of secular expression of Jewish pride. Um, you know, I'm not celebrating the best davener, <laughs> the best prayer, or, or the, the most famous cantor. Um, what I'm celebrating is this Jewish person who's accomplished a lot, or that has raised Jewish self-esteem, or that simply has been successful. Or part of our culture. And is connected to us, right. And not because of what... I mean, I, I'll often ask this question to people who are in, in my face a little bit about humanistic Judaism. I'll ask them, does Adam Sandler believe in God? 
And the correct answer is, who knows? But it doesn't matter for his self-identification and communal identification as being Jewish. What he's done to contribute to Jewish culture, life, civilization has nothing to do with what he believes. So it's a good demonstration of one of our principles that being Jewish is an ethnic, family, cultural connection much more than it is a set of beliefs and practices and ritual behavior. Uh, and the museum demonstrates that strongly. Is what he's I'm positive. Well, because he really, they say he changed Hollywood. He was the one that really brought on the biggest culture change in Hollywood. Yeah, Woody Allen was very important. And then, <laughs> the personal side. Well, look, Albert Einstein supposedly was very bad to his family, too. Um, oh, yeah. You know, there's, a, there's all sorts of cases like that. The, um, I mean, the reason why I, we started with this subject as a curricular matter in the first place is that uh, early in this life story of humanistic Judaism, doing a Torah portion commentary is the only way to do a bar or bat mitzvah became very limiting. Because you were hearing Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, uh, enough already. And some of the values of the traditional text were not really our values. So how could we look at Jewish culture and a coming-of-age event in a way that was creative, but also still very Jewish and connecting to that uh, culture and history. And the solution we came up with was to focus on a topic, or in many communities, a hero, a specific person. At that age of 10, 11, 12, it's tangible, you get your hands around it. Choose someone whose life exemplifies values that you would like to exemplify, or whose interests and activities exemplify something that you would like to do. If you're big into violin, you can choose a violinist. If you're interested in science, you can choose a scientist. If you're interested in military history, you can choose a military figure. If you're interested in politics and government, you can choose figures out of politics and government. But what that does is it allows you to explore their life, find parallels between their life and your life, and uh, get a sense of how they impacted Jewish culture and how you might be able to impact Jewish history going forward. Uh, often many of them exemplify values of humanistic Judaism. I mean, we didn't have a lot of people choosing Rashi, the medieval Torah commentator, for their humanistic Jewish hero. We had a lot more people choosing Albert Einstein, Isaac Asimov, um, uh, Jonas Salk, who cured polio, uh, you know, had the, polio, the most popular polio vaccine. Um, figures like that that would be well-known. Some did Betty Friedan or uh, Golda Meir. Um, we even had one student in the 60s who did uh, David Ben-Gurion and wrote him a letter and got a letter back. We had a number of students who did um, Stephen Jay Gould, the Harvard evolutionary biologist, and he was always very gracious with his time to write letters back to their questions and uh, contact them. So it, it can be a very positive experience. And we even had one student at the Birmingham Temple who did Rosa Parks as their uh, hero, and she came to the bar mitzvah wow. because she was from Detroit. Mm -hmm. And uh, they invited her, and she came. Wow. Um, so, you know, you can have those kind of meaningful experiences uh, that were really positive. And so, in Chicago, at least, one, it was thought that if we're going to choose that option, which at the time was called the English Bar Mitzvah choice, to choose a topic or a hero, uh, it made sense to have a, a class that explored what are your options, <laughs> who are your choices, and how do you make a choice of who a hero is. And that's where the Heroes and Choices curriculum uh, had its beginnings. So before I go through what our curriculum covers, um, as an example of uh, teaching you what the kids are learning in that fourth and fifth grade class, 
Um, did you have any questions or comments or reactions to that uh, opening material? I mean, I'll, I'll tell you my own experience. I did a Birmingham Temple Bar Mitzvah with a hero as the focus. My hero was uh, Raoul Wallenberg, who was a Swedish diplomat mm -hmm. who saved tens of thousands of Jews in Hungary near the end of the Second World War. And then after the war, was arrested by the Russians who couldn't believe that the CIA, or the OSS at the time, uh, had actually sent someone just to save Jews. He must have been a spy. So they arrested him, he went into the gulag system, and was never definitively heard from or seen again. They claimed he died in 1947, uh, but he, there were sightings of him, supposedly, uh, into the 50s and 60s. So we never really, just like many that went into the gulag, we'll never know what happened to him. Uh, but he was from a wealthy banking family in Sweden, did not have to get involved in what was happening in Budapest, but he felt committed to doing it. He happened to go to the University of Michigan for an architecture degree uh, when he was younger, so that was another local connection. Um, but, you know, the fact that I had a non-Jewish hero for my bar mitzvah hero, I didn't see was any problem because you want to talk about exemplifying humanistic values and having a positive impact on Jewish history and culture, can't beat that. And that's the other angle on the choosing the hero that I wanted to highlight. Sometimes it's an interesting question for us, where does our humanism fit into what we're doing in the Sunday school? Because we're not simply a school of philosophy where we're going to examine with our second graders, how do we know what we know? Let's explore the basis of human knowledge. And then in third grade, we'll explore what is a good life? Let's explore what the good life is. And then in fourth grade, how does one choose ethical behavior? Well, let's explore several different ethical scenarios and how you would make your... Okay, we're not doing a ton of that. We do a little bit here and there. But in general, our humanism is the lens through which we see our Jewishness. Or it's the lang our Jewishness is the language in which we express this approach to life. So this is one of the ways that our humanism affects our study of Jewish history and culture. Our willingness to criticize the heroes of the past and not simply tell the kids... You know, the simple, easy story, but maybe to complicate the question. Also in our choice of which stories we're going to look at and which heroes. And more importantly, the idea of making choices for yourself. It's one of the core tenets of the humanistic approach to life, no matter what your ethnic background. And uh, we demonstrate that by looking at the choices the heroes make and how we would make choices going forward ourselves. So in the fourth and fifth grade class, they begin with what's called the hero's journey. And they use Star Wars as the uh, model <laughs> so that you can see uh, in a narrative that many of the kids are familiar with some of the major features of who is a hero, who is not a hero, the anti-hero, all those major types show up in that narrative. They do have a discussion on hero versus celebrity. I mean, the advantage of name recognition may be offset by the gambling problems or the family issues. They do talk about the whole question of superheroes, versus human heroes, and how you make that distinction. And in particular, they do a unit on um, some of the Jewish roots of comic book heroes. Uh, as many of you may be familiar, the creators of Superman were both Jewish. And um, they, uh, there's some theories that it's sort of a reworking of Samson, or a kind of, you know, in the 1930s, in an era of strong anti-Semitism, both in Europe and in America. This is sort of a Jewish compensatory thing. Superman is cast adrift in a basket, sort of. <laughs> the Moses uh, echo there and what happens to Superman is he's left for his world is being destroyed. 
Um, he's a refugee. He's a stranger in a strange land. He's different from everybody else. Uh, nobody he has to wear ugly clothes. <laughs> he has these strange clothes. Nobody understands him. <laughs> he has a secret identity. He's passing, right. as just like everybody else when he's out on the street. Uh, so there's a lot of parallels you can draw to to a Jewish experience with Superman. Um, also, his name is Kal El, and the L mm-hmm. at the end is sort of a divinity connection name in uh, in Jewish life. So, what? No, it must be something like that. Right now, how they circumcised him, I have no idea. <laughs> With kryptonite, the big crystals on it. Um, yeah, oh, no, oh, that was why they were so pointy. Okay. <laughs> Stay still. Right, right. The big wrist party was. No, no. Well, I guess no. I guess that would have maybe he was put in the basket after the eighth day, and then it was done there under the red sun, so there wasn't a problem. Okay. Now, we've, now that we've solved that problem. <laughs> Um, one of the issues that we do get into um, in this fourth and fifth grade curriculum is uh, looking at heroes in the Bible. Um, one of the interesting details of the Bible is, and, and non-humanistic Jewish uh, scholars have looked at this too, that in many ways our heroes are sometimes anti-heroes or flawed heroes. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Saul, the first king, has his moments of weakness and problem, and David has plenty of weaknesses and flaws. Uh, certainly, his treatment of Uriah the Hittite to steal his wife Bathsheba and his abuses of power and, and other problems. Uh, Solomon marries these foreign wives. Uh, you know, Noah, who saves humanity, gets drunk as soon as he gets off the boat. Uh, so there's all kinds of complications. Uh, what? Everybody's got skeletons. Everybody's got skeletons, right. But what's interesting is that these, these heroes in the Bible are not pure, absolute heroes. Uh, they have their own evolution and flaws, and mm-hmm. they're, they're very human in some ways. Um, so again, if you take the Bible as literature and not as divinely inspired, revealed text, you can read it as a very interesting exploration of what makes a hero and what doesn't. Now, we have to preface this, or make the caveat, that the major hero of the Bible is none of these characters. The major hero of the Bible is God. He's the one that does all the heavy lifting and is the one that people turn to in times of crisis. He's the author of everything that happens that's good, and the reason for everything that happens that's bad that you deserve anyways because you screwed up. So whenever you're reading these stories, that's the major focus. When it comes time for Passover, if you read the traditional Haggadah, there is no Moses. Because Moses isn't important. <laughs> He's the loudspeaker. But the author, the voice, is what's important. And so in the Haggadah, unlike the Exodus story, Moses takes a very minor position, is, is not even there. Uh, even in many more modern Haggadahs, Moses is de-emphasized for, uh, for God instead. God isn't a flawed character in the Bible at all. Well, <laughs> it depends how you read it. Uh, if you've read uh, Jack Miles' very interesting book, God, a biography, um, he, he looks at it as a character who develops. Right. And uh, people don't often do that. But uh, it's an interesting, intriguing approach. And there's also um, a book by Richard Elliott Friedman, uh, the biblical history scholar, uh, called something like The Disappearing Face of God or The Disappearing God or The Hidden God, something like that. And he makes the point that early in the Bible, God is walking in the garden. He's molding people with his hands. As time goes on, he becomes a voice. You're not allowed to see him. Even though earlier generations did see him, they see his hand, they see his feet, but later on they say you can't see him, he becomes a voice, he becomes simply remote, he becomes the author of the universe, he gets more and more distant, 
from humanity. Mm -hmm. And we might argue that's just like any origin story, it has to wind up like the way we have the world today. You know, if Adam and Eve end the story living forever, that's not a useful origin story, because we don't. So in the end of the biblical narrative, God has to be not here, because in our experience of the world, don't see any red seas parting in our experience, so we have to have a very remote God to match our own experience. Mm -hmm. He appears in grilled cheese sandwiches. Uh, oh, well, okay. <laughs> yes. There's I thought the, that was... Uh, she does. Yeah, I thought that was virgin. Oh, a little bit of both. Uh, you got Jesus figures. Yeah, you, right. That's right. Uh, you never know. Grilled cheese sandwiches, oil spots on the wall. That's what Western cheese is, Right. These tests of faith have become much more complicated now. Okay. So some of the narratives in the Bible that the 4th uh, and 5th grade explore, uh, they look at the question of Jonah. So, arguments for Jonah being a hero, he's a prophet, he goes to where he's supposed to go eventually, he delivers his message, and his message is actually successful. People actually atone and repent. And it's a fun story with Jonah, Jonah, Jonah in the whale, whale, whale. But Jonah also is kind of an anti-hero, because he doesn't follow the commandment, he runs away. And he flees, and then when he shows up, he delivers his message, and it's successful, and he's mad that it's successful, because now he looks stupid. I said Nineveh was going to be destroyed in five days, and now I look like an idiot, he says to God. God tries to make the point, look, <laughs> what was your point here? <laughs> what was the objective? But the problems with Jonah. Uh, they look at the David and Goliath story. So that's one many of us are familiar with. Um, what would be positive aspects of David coming out of the David and Goliath story? Jewish strength. Right? Anything else? Well, he's successful. I mean, he says he does what he sets out to do mm -hmm. against literally enormous odds. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Shows courage in doing that. Mm -hmm. yeah. Leadership. Mm -hmm. Intelligence. Not resourcefulness because right. he's using the. Right. Stones well, of weapon and where he actually gets them. Mm-hmm. Skill right. Using resources at hand, he just picks up stones from next mm -hmm. to him and supposed to well, planning ahead is useful too, but um, overcoming a huge obstacle. Right. Right. Just the well, in many ways it's a model for Jewish life. We're the we're the small generally. Right. Mm -hmm. And the other side is the big. Mm -hmm. either in stature or in number or whatever. Um, so what would be the downside to David in the David and Goliath story? Probably he's a murderer. Mm. Is it murder? Combat. Well, that's true. Well, so he's a killer. Well, but he still kills them. Mm -hmm. Through violence, I guess you would say. Well, he does oh. actually knock him unconscious and then cut off his head. Right. Right. Solving through violence, I guess. Rather than making peace, he chooses war. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. When he himself gets to be important, that sort of goes to his head. Mm -hmm. You know, he uh, takes someone else's wife. He uses the military as a way to get him killed. He sends Uriah out after he's coveted his wife. He sends Uriah out with a letter. Well, I mean, the story of David and Bathsheba is a great example. David sees Bathsheba. He covets her, he sleeps with her, she gets pregnant. 
So then he calls Uriah back from the battlefield and says, go spend a night with your wife to cover, right? And Uriah sleeps in his doorway, won't go inside his house. Because, as he says, my brothers are out there on the field of battle, and I'm going to go sleep with my wife? Well, it's sort of an implicit critique of David, after all. Uh, so then David sends Uriah back to the battlefield with a letter to the general saying, attack the city with Uriah in the front, and then everyone else pull back, and he'll be killed. And that is what happens. And David takes Bathsheba. Now that's, again, becoming the big person, not remembering the small person. And so then the prophet Nathan goes to David and says, to David, I want to tell you a story. There was a man in town who had one little goat, and it was his favorite. He loved this goat like nobody else. And then a rich man in town who had lots and lots of goats and lots of property murdered the poor man and took his goat. And David said, who is this rich man? We should get him. And Nathan says, you idiot. <laughs> That's you. <laughs> That's you. He was a small person, now he's the big person. So there's certainly David's flaws. Mm-hmm. Um, look at the Noah story. What are examples of the Noah story that you could see as admirable, worthy of emulation, uh, worthy of study? He loved the animals. <laughs> okay. Is handy. Yeah. <laughs> Good listener. Clearly, clearly, yeah. Good listener. Okay. <laughs> Free George. Right. Exactly. Right. Well, he, he perseveres. He. Mm-hmm. There's an interesting discussion about what did Noah do to deserve it. It says, as sort of an aside, Noah was righteous in his generation. What does that mean? Does that mean it was a really, really bad generation and he was just slightly better than everybody else? Moral relativism. Right. Or the other argument was that he is so, to have been good in such a bad generation, he would have been good in any generation. You know, if you could be good in that time, how much more so you'd be good in a time when other people are good around you? So it's an opening for that kind of uh, debate. Theoretically, he reestablishes civilization. He receives a series of laws uh, that define basic human behavior. Um, it's an origin story for humanity. It's like a new Adam, in some ways, starting over. It's certainly a literary image and cultural image. You've you got to know. But uh, what are some aspects of Noah that are problematic in calling him a hero? He doesn't stand up to God to say we don't really need to wipe, wipe out humanity. Right. And what about the other kangaroos? Mm-hmm. I mean, only two kangaroos are worthy of being saved compared to all the other kangaroos? Mm-hmm. He saves his family. Now, as long as all my kids and their wives can get on the boat, okay. Now, it's not necessarily... Critique worthy? Would we, in a similar situation, not spend spend energy to save our family to the abstraction of others? You know, this this has a lot of resonance in the post-Holocaust era when you had these Jewish councils and ghettos who were deciding who was going on the transports. And in some cases, they did save their families. Mm-hmm. And it's very hard to blame them. It's a very, very human impulse. Well, that's true to any hero, because if you go to criticize... Every hero, you'll have different standards. So, 
Right, or no heroes at all. <laughs> yes. Right. Well, yeah, yes. we're reliant on them. And then again, Noah plants a vineyard after he gets off the boat and then gets drunk and then curses one of his sons forever because of what happens afterwards and whatever. Okay, so another hero, I'll just look at uh, two more, is Eve in the Garden of Eden story. So what are some ways, look at the opposite, since usually she's criticized, what are some ways that Eve is to be criticized as not really a heroine? Didn't listen. Didn't listen. Yeah, right. Okay. This is a recurring theme with me right now. <laughs> <laughs> yes, didn't listen. Well, she listened to the wrong people. Right. And she did listen to the serpent. Uh, Brought somebody else down with her. Right. Gave into te- temptation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Forbidden fruit worked. Mm-hmm. In this case. It's really uh, kind of damned if you're Catholic or if you're... Born with sin. <laughs> right, she's, she gave everyone, every woman a bad reputation. Didn't take responsibility. Right, she doesn't take responsibility. She blames someone else, as Adam does too. Right. Um, and then, on the flip side, what could make her a positive figure? Well, she doesn't she, uh, doesn't her act... Um, uh, maybe I'm wrong in my understanding of the story, but doesn't what she does cause uh, sexual reproduction? <laughs> yes. Well, that's okay. Well, let me. I don't know where I'd be without it. Let me both broaden it and make it more age appropriate for fourth and fifth grade. What she does is she breaks through an arbitrary rule. Why shouldn't people know good from evil? What's wrong with knowledge? I mean, in the passage it says, she saw the tree was good for food and desirable desirable to make one wise. Literally, haskil, to, to get enlightenment, to enlighten one. What's wrong with knowing more? What's but isn't that kind of like the accidental hero? Because she didn't really understand before eating the apple what wisdom even was. Yeah, that's true. But it was something she wanted. She wanted to know. Yeah, we, without her, we wouldn't be human. Well, I mean, again, but that's why I'm saying we wouldn't have accident. the choice. We wouldn't have these choices right. to make. We right. wouldn't know because without being human, we're we are just like the animals right. in a sense, yeah. not knowing right. good or evil. We right. just are. We again, or just all curiosity. Sure, yeah. we were exactly. suppressed people, right? <laughs> right. I mean, you could call her the mother of curiosity, which is the curi- the mother of invention, um, and. You know, on some level also, if you're looking at it that way, then she didn't withhold that from someone else. As opposed to implicating Adam in her crime, instead, once she experienced the marvels of human knowledge and whatever else came out of the apple, uh, or the fruit, might have been a fig, it's not quite clear. Uh, Right. uh, She didn't keep it from Adam. She wanted him to experience it as well. And, uh, and then open his eyes, too. So, uh, it's a, you know, an interesting counter-reading of the story from the way the traditional rabbis read it. Um, but it's a legitimate reading based on some of the pieces there. And more importantly, it's a reading of the story that's more relevant and interesting to our take on it. If you read uh, a lot of Jewish feminism, for example, and their writings, they, they talk a lot about Eve as a uh, too much maligned, uh, worthy of redemption figure.
But she also, I mean, you could look at it that, I mean, you talked about this at some point, I can't remember what the context was, but that God put these things out there. Obviously, something was going to happen. Yeah. And she was had the courage enough to ful- to sacrifice herself in a way to fulfill what was going to have to be done anyway. It was, mm-hmm. it, it was inevitable. You have this. I mean, God had the snake, and God had the apple, and God, I mean, you know. So what mm-hmm. you, and eternity to do with. What you expect? <laughs> what, you, what would you have expected? You know. So really, the whole story could have had a different spin on it. Yes. Well, and it has. It's been given that. Uh, you know, the original sin idea is a Catholic interpretation of that story. Um, focusing on the sex issue, right. and uh, you know, I mean, Jewish interpretations have focused on the following the law question, following the rules, because again, Jewish law became a very important category for the rabbis. And so, the fact that she broke the law, the fact that when she's repeating to the snake what the rule is, um, she adds something to it. When Adam is told by God about the tree, he says, "Don't eat from the tree." And the snake asks Eve, "What's the story with this tree?" And her answer is. We can't eat from it. We can't even touch it. So the assumption is that Adam, when telling her these rules, because she's, she emerges from his rib after God gives Adam the rule, that he's added something to the rule. And maybe adding something to the rule is dangerous. But following the rule is also crucially important. So they're, they're sort of having it both ways. Okay, the last hero to think about out of the biblical narrative is Samson. You know, the story of Samson, who is the strong man who is a promised strength because of the vow his parents had taken never to cut his hair. Um, he's a bit of a bully at times um, and uh, nevertheless uh, is successful in fighting off the Philistines in his own way, at least killing lots of them. Um, he's seduced by Delilah, who herself is Philistine, and she finally gets the secret out of him and cuts his hair, and then he is powerless, he's captured, he's blinded by the uh, Philistines, and then they take him out sometime later to laugh at him, but his hair has grown back, and he manages to knock down their major temple, and thus killing more on that day than he had any other time, even though he died in the process. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, in what ways is Samson heroic? So he defeats the enemy, his strength. He obeys God's laws. Yeah. Well, the sacrifice no. of not cutting your hair, I right. guess, if that's a sacrifice. Yep, his hair. He made a deal. He made shampoo at the time. He made a deal, he stuck to the deal, <laughs> right. Oh, he probably had lace. Conditioned food. <laughs> he is clever. I mean, in the story, he's, he makes riddles, he, uh, he is clever about things. But at the same time, as I said, he is a bit of a bully in how he uses his strength. His strength is given not only for good actions. You know, it's not like if he's going to murder somebody in cold blood, all of a sudden his strength goes, his strength is there. It's like Hercules. It's, it's who he is. Mm-hmm. Um, and for the authors of the story, his weakness is women. In particular, foreign women. And so they would see his uh, seduction by the Shiksagatas as something dangerous, uh, something to be avoided. Is that the origin of uh, that fear? No, no, no. (laughs) 
It, I mean, it, it shows up in a lot of places in, uh, in Jewish life. Uh, in the Jacob and Esau stories, for example, Esau wants to piss off his parents, and so he marries a oh. non-Jewish woman. Um, yeah, I, I mean, it, it shows up periodically. Right. right, it shows up periodically. It's in the Abraham story. Isn't it? I mean, the, his, his, his taking the, you know... Well, his wife told him to do it, though. Well, yes, but then what becomes of the son? Of yeah, right, they kick it. Yeah. Yeah. Ishmael, yeah. Ishmael mm-hmm. goes off to basically raise a tribe of people who... Well, that's uh, that's in the long run. Yeah, it raises rival people. That's right. Yeah, I mean. So, in looking at these uh, biblical heroes or heroes in quotes, um, there are a couple of goals in doing that in the classroom setting. One is so that the students become familiar with the stories. You know, this is a kind of cultural literacy. If you've never heard who Samson is, coming out of a Jewish Sunday school, you've we haven't done our job in terms of Jewish literacy. Uh, but the second is to learn this process of evaluating people and characters, both in terms of the literary character model, but also what your character is. You know, how you, what are the good traits in a character? What are the bad traits in a character? Uh, we also look, as we go through the specific holidays, at the heroes of that holiday. So the Maccabees, obviously, this time of year. Uh, we look at Esther around the Purim holiday and Moses around Passover. And again, we have to evaluate uh, Moses has his positives and his negatives. Um, and again, he's often just a loudspeaker for what God wants to do. Uh, but even so, God in the Passover story has his positives and negatives. You know, when he gets to plagues 8, 9, and 10, Pharaoh is more or less inclined to let them go. And it says in the, in the Bible that God hardens Pharaoh's heart just to show off some more. I often liken the last plague, the killing of the firstborn, to the second atomic bomb that we dropped in Nagasaki. Because from what I've read about the history, um, most likely we knew that the Japanese were asking for peace at that point. But we needed to show the Russians that we could do it again, that it wasn't just an accident. And so that second bomb wasn't, didn't need to be dropped. But it was, to show off to show others that you could do this. And it says very clearly in the, uh, I think it's Exodus 10 or Exodus 11, um, I'm doing this so that the world will know my power. So it's, uh, it's problematic too. And that's why when we're dealing with the plagues in our congregational Seder, some places will sort of have fun with them and they'll give the kids little rubber frogs and ping pong balls for the hail and you know, they sort of throw things around and we've decided, you know what? That story is not funny. And it's a little bit of schadenfreude, joy in the suffering of other people. Mm-hmm. Um, but even more so, it's, uh, it shows problematic character um, by the Hebrews who get out of it but don't tell their neighbors how to get out of it and by the, uh, the God of the Hebrews who's imposing this on the people when it's Pharaoh who hasn't let the people go. It says even the prisoner in the dungeon lost their firstborn child. What did they have to do with the Israelites not getting to go after plague number eight? So, this is our dilemma, you see. We ask questions based on rational thought, we wind up with no heroes. Or at least, no simple heroes. It's always going to be complicated. But in some ways, the, simp- the, the more complicated heroes are more realistic, because they're more like us. Uh, part of my dissertation research on uh, modern Midrash, which was creative stories based on biblical stories, focused on the fact that the God in these stories is a lot more humanized 
he doesn't know what's going on, he makes mistakes, mm -hmm. uh, he tells jokes, there's some humor there, or there's jokes involving him, he doesn't quite understand what's going on. But it makes it more like us. It's more relatable than the imperious other that has nothing to do with humanity and its limits. Well, that's not... I can't relate to that anymore. It's nothing I've experienced. And uh, people today, even in more liberal theologies, are looking for a God they can like. You know, think of that uh, song, What If God Was One Of Us? Just a slob like one of us, someone else on the... Wouldn't that be more relatable than the imperious other? What? Parting seas, how many parting seas? Yeah, how many people part at parting seas that you know of? Right. Now, we do also look <clears throat> at examples of heroes out of history. Um, they look at Chaim Solomon, who was a Jew involved in the uh, Revolutionary War. The, the story is he was like the banker of the revolution. Surprise, Jews throw their money around. Mm -hmm. um, okay. Uh, but also looking at even non Jewish figures or partly Jewish figures like Paul Newman. Um, I think he's a quarter Jewish, according to the song. Uh, but uh, Abraham Lincoln is one example coming out of the state of Illinois. There's a local residence. Uh, Charles Darwin, around February, there's an event called Darwin Day, where a number of organizations will uh, celebrate his birthday with a focus on evolution. Um, and his own personal story is very interesting, because he originally was training to be a, a pastor, a minister. And then he got interested in science and went in that direction, and ultimately, as a result of his scientific study, he wound up as an agnostic, uh, because he just didn't believe that all those traditional stories that said it happened exactly this way, when his evidence led him to believe something else, they couldn't both be right. And so he wound up in the more humanist camp. Uh, so Darwin is an example of finding the truth, seeking the truth. It's exemplifying one of those values. And then the last hero unit they look at is everyday heroes. You, know, you don't have to be a capital H hero to do things that are heroic. There was that story a year and a half ago of uh, the person who jumped on the subway tracks when someone had fallen down and made sure they were flat when the train went over. Um, they had, this person had not thought about doing it in advance, had not lived a very remarkable life before, probably went back to a relative obscurity, but at that moment, acted to do something very important. Um, there's a, uh, a woman who tells a very touching story about she was in a grocery store somewhere and she saw a, um, an older woman trying to pick up something she had dropped and this man stopped what he was doing and he bent down and he helped her and he helped her get what she needed and then went on her way and she said, and three months later I married that man. Because <laughs> evidently she went to talk to him afterwards saying, I saw what a nice thing you did and that was exemplifying the kind of behavior, the kind of person that she wanted to, mm -hmm. um, that she found attractive and uh, meaningful to connect with. So that's, the, that's why we end with that subject. Because as the kids go out, they're most likely not going to be Abraham Lincoln or Charles Darwin or David or Samson or any of those characters. They may try to draw and trace from those people. But in the end, their heroism is going to come in everyday interactions. It's going to be the bullying that they stop. It's going to be the taunting of someone else that they decide not to participate in and even comfort the person who's being taunted and not be on the other side. Um, it's going to be the, you know, the choice of what they do with their money, uh, whether they give some to a worthy cause or spend it all on candy. It's going to be small-level things where they practice this kind of behavior and then learn how to uh, live a better life, if not heroic, at least 
improved. Mm -hmm. um, at a recent colloquium, uh, one of the speakers who is an expert in anti-Semitism pointed out that there are strong similarities between modern Muslim fundamentalism, more radical uh, Islam, and uh, the Nazi and the Soviet totalitarian systems. And the similarity is that both of them were looking for a perfect world. They imagined that if they did everything they were supposed to do, what would result would be perfect. <coughs> and, and anyone getting in the way of the perfect world, it was worth it to get rid of them, to squash them. Because they're standing in the way of the perfect world for everybody. And so even people who were on the receiving end of the crushing, who believed in the perfect world, would submit to it. You know, they ask, how did all these people confess at these Stalin-era trials to all these things they never did? And why did people let it go? Why didn't they blame Stalinism? Well, they said, it's the force for good in the world. It's, it's what's going to lead to the perfect existence. And so more Muslims and more Arabs have been killed by suicide bombings than non-Arabs. Because they're targeting the ones in the way of the perfect world, whether in the distance or even the ones close to them. Beware the perfect world, said the speaker. Instead, let's work for a slightly better world. Not a perfect world, a slightly better world. That's an agenda we can meet. It doesn't crush people in the way. That's the kind of heroism that's much more relevant and inspiring and educational for someone in fourth and fifth grade looking to their bar bar mitzvah, but more importantly, looking toward their life. Mm -hmm. So, any other comments or questions? No? So who are some of your heroes? If you had to pick a hero. Nobody. Oh, my dad. Yeah, a lot of people choose family. Pretty natural thing to do. I, if I could choose aspects of my dad. I would do that. Going through the same process we could see it. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, uh, all of us, uh, you know, it's not perfect. Right, right. Yeah, well, definitely going to take the, the good parts. And, well, but that's what you said. You, you want to take the traits that you want to be associated with. And, mm -hmm. you know, not, not that you don't want to know about the other parts, but you, I mean, you want to see more of a, you know, every human, it's, it's a balanced act. So, mm -hmm. I mean, there's good and bad. Or, or I mean, I, I guess not good and bad. I mean, I guess you can look at it as good and bad, but just different. Uh, characteristics. Mm -hmm. Any other heroes? Hmm. My bar mitzvah was on Shoal Malachim, but I'd like to redo that one. <laughs> so I didn't go into writing. Oh, okay. <laughs> was that your, that was your bar Yeah. That would have been cool to... I was trying to think. I, I, you know what? I didn't identify her at the time, but when I was growing up, my hero was probably Betty Friedan or whoever it was who started to popularize feminism. Mm -hmm. oh. I, I'm of the generation that when I was like in kindergarten, my teacher said, and the girls can be nurses or they can be teachers. Uh -huh. And I'm sitting there going, wait a minute. <laughs> 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 I wasn't Shinwer? 
Hero. Oscar Schindler? Yeah. Sure. I mean, that movie is a great example of the hero's journey. He's very flawed at the beginning, and his motivation is mercenary, and in the end, it, uh, it evolves into something else. You know, that's interesting, because you know, all my kids went, took the heroes class, mm -hmm. and their big takeaway from the class was not necessarily the heroes themselves, but the process. Mm -hmm. And I hear about that all the time all the time. It'll, it, it gets brought up in like dinner table conversations. The, the, the hero's journey and the process and what has to happen. Mm -hmm. And they found that, that much, not, not more interesting, but that was their big takeaway. Right. Well, how often does Samson come up in dinner conversations? Well, in our conversation? All right. <laughs> her daughter is doing Samson as uh, her Hebrew reading. <laughs> That's for service. My guess is Jonah doesn't come up very often. Oh, maybe not the biblical genre. Yes. There's some other genres. <laughs> I would say Abraham Lincoln is a hero. Mm -hmm. Oh, it's the fact that the process comes up that tells you that it's not necessarily the heroes that you want to remember, but the process of examining those heroes. Right. So it's, you know. it's a very good, it's a great class. And it's, a, it's something that they take and they use, and they use it in you know, their, their regular school. It's relevant. It's fair. Well, I mean, just by knowing the process, then you can uh, really looking at any hero out there. If you're just looking at one particular hero, you can't really look at others. Right. I think what's interesting, too, and I know, sorry if any of this came up earlier, but um, one of the big things that they spend a lot of time in that class is talking about celebrities. Because for a lot of kids, celebrity equals hero. And that the time that they spend distinguishing between those two things, I think, is really helpful. I mean, I remember not that many years ago. You know, Hannah Montana is a hero. Yes, she is. I, I insist that Hannah Montana is a hero. <laughs> and having the conversation around that was really interesting. Um, and the other thing is, in a lot of other congregations, and certainly in the books that are published by Jewish educators, a lot of heroes' curriculums are basically lists of famous Jews. You know, oh, this person was Jewish, and that, and oh, yay, yay, aren't we proud? without really getting beyond that. And I think you know what Yubicha said is true. It's not so much that you can memorize this list of names, but that you understand why, what's important about that. Well, and it's, you know, the, the, famous Jew, the cult of famous Jews is problematic for a couple of reasons. Mm -hmm. It makes us into ethnic cheerleaders. Mm -hmm. You know, if you've ever been to a spirit day, there's no complicated evaluation of what's good and bad about your school. It's, <laughs> it's, my school, ah! What school did you go to? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's all just yelling and, and uh, mindless, in some ways mindless, rooting for my team. And uh, all too often, uh, that kind of ethnic cheerleading um, is the approach to Jewish history, let alone to you know, choosing role models and so on. Um, and the second challenge with it is it gets, a, it gets to be a little bit essentialist. Like, what is it that's particularly Jewish about Albert Einstein's science? Is he doing Jewish science? Well, that begins to sound like, like the Nazis were referring to psychology or to mm -hmm. you know, theoretical physics as a Jewish science. That's what Carrie used to talk about a lot when she took the class. She kept saying, what does this have to do with being Jewish? <laughs> Seriously, I mean, she was just like, okay, so we're talking about all these heroes and what was important about them, but how does this connect? to me or to anybody else who's been Jewish? Well, I mean, the short answer is we're trying not to over-essentialize them in that 
their achievements are their achievements as individuals, uh, not simply because they have Jewish genes in them, or Jewish genes on them. Um, but that's right. I think I think you can pick Albert Einstein as a hero for what he contributed to science, not necessarily what he contributed to Jewish culture. Right. And I will say for my mocking of ethnic cheerleading, there is a purpose in having pride in one's family and one's family's achievement, as long as it doesn't become a we are better than everybody right. else. It's, it's the balance between self-esteem of I'm good, which schools spend a lot of time on these days, sometimes a little <laughs> too much, um, versus I'm better than everyone else. And uh, there's a great passage in a, uh, a book on secular Jewish education by a man named Mitchell Silver, who runs a secular Jewish school in Boston, or Iran, he actually retired, um, where he, he describes what he calls the internal stance. I'm not an objective evaluator of my children, he says. Nor should I be expected to be. I love my kids. And... I am able to get what's called the outside stance, the external stance, to see how other people see them. You know, if they steal something from another kid, I'm not going to say, well, it's my kid, so hands off. I need to treat them on some level like they're independent agents. But at the same, and certainly if I'm like coaching their soccer team or something, I can't give them favoritism. That's inappropriate. But in the end, I'm not going to be an objective evaluator, and I'm going to feel extra happy when they score a goal even as I'm happy for the whole team, when someone else scores, there's an inescapable human element to it. And so there is a purpose to giving people this kind of ego support of having uh, famous Jews or successful Jews. Sometimes it's to find out what's Jewish about their connections. Um, Sometimes it's it's a counter example. Um, With Betty Friedan as one example, there was a famous uh, national uh, women's march in New York City. Um, they wound up in Bryant Park or Washington Square Park, one of those places. And Ferdan gave a speech. And at the end of her speech, she said, in my, in my family tradition, in Jewish tradition, every morning a man would wake up and say, thank God for not making me a woman. Today I say, thank God for making me a woman and for making sure that I'm here today to see this event. So that was a case of using the tradition as a counterpoint but it still is a touchstone for her in, in terms of her own personal identity development. Um, so we can use the Jewish connections in many ways. The ethnic pride is a relevant piece to it. Um, but we don't want to go overboard in trying to ascertain what aspect of Albert Einstein's aborted bar mitzvah training that he never finished later on would come to be the key to the theory of relativity. Uh, just both not that interesting and somewhat problematic to, to spend too much time on that. One thing that we, um, especially as human, I think it might be harder for those who aren't humanistic persuasion mm-hmm. um, to have those to talk about those. I mean, I think it's easier for us. Most of these people identify as being Jewish on some level. Mm-hmm. And they've done these things to better human conditions. Right, and so I think that you know, I guess if they totally rejected Judaism and there was nothing to be about Jewish, but but I think as far as what we promote, they identify a lot of them identify as being Jewish, mm-hmm. and they've contributed something to make the world better. 
Right. And I, so I think that's perfectly appropriate for what we learn. And I also agree with what uh, several of you guys said, which is, I think it's the process. And I think hopefully, I think what Monica's a nice job of, I hope it translates into Aunt Veronica, is that what you, you're looking at others and you're exploring others' choices and you hopefully can look at your own choices that you made and, and evaluate them. Right. Mm-hmm. Sometimes, so, sometimes what we're getting out is content. As soon as what we're getting out is yeah. understanding right. the concept, right. um, and in this case, the curriculum is a little bit of both. Mm-hmm. The content is maybe the biblical narratives, the biographies, the history mm-hmm. around the biographies. Um, if they memorize who Chaim Solomon was or don't, it's not the end of the world. But it's also the concept of mm-hmm. hero and heroic behavior, and, and uh, it's a kind of getting at ethics the long way around instead of yeah. looking at ethical scenarios or focusing on major philosophical debates and who Immanuel Kant was. They don't need that. So I guess the next question, and maybe this is too advanced for fourth and fifth grade, is is the modern humanist, modern Jewish existence something that allows these types of innovations, whether it's relativity when everybody else is looking for some kind of ether to, to explain, you know, how electromagnetism works, that, you know, Einstein is able to say, no, 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 that doesn't make any sense, and, and you just have to look smaller and look bigger and, you know, and look at things differently and, and throw God out because that doesn't really explain anything. Right. And, um, you know, or Betty Friedan being able to challenge, you know, the 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 establishment to, you know. Well, we sometimes get too much credit for that because Ferdinand didn't do it by herself. No, of course not. But uh, it, and she didn't do it purely out of Jewish tradition. You know, she got it from the surrounding culture. She went to a non-Jewish women's college, I think Smith. And um, in fact, it was an article that she was writing for Ladies Home Journal, I think. The alumni paper. No, I thought it was a, it was a follow-up on the alumni, but I thought it was for a general publication. It started, it started, my understanding is it started with an alumni survey. Right. What are you doing? How are you yes. feeling? And they all replied, we're home and we're miserable. Right. And she's like, what is going on here? What happened to these bright women? Yes. What happened? What oh, actually, she shopped it to a number of ladies' magazines and no one wanted it. Now it should be the men are home and we're miserable. What? Not always. Not always. I'm home. I'm not miserable. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyways, um, the point is, it can always be slightly better, right? <laughs> not perfect. Not perfect, but it can be slightly better, right? Okay. Well, I hope you enjoyed this tour through the heroes and choices curriculum, where it came from, and uh, what its possibilities are. Uh, I mean, there are books of famous Jewish men and famous Jewish women, and you'll find some interesting stories in there. Um, in the end, when you ask people, who are your heroes, Noah's answer is the most common answer. It's my mom, my dad, my grandparents, and people tend to pick what's comfortable and familiar, and uh, that's the, it's the heroes they see every day that make the most difference. And we still have some food left. humanistic group that's going on, and really trying to uh, put advertising out against uh, Christianity and... Yes, there's a whole series of ads now from the American Humanist Association, um, which are saying things like, the Bible says women should submit, and we say, you know, everyone should uh, speak their mind. Um, I mean, it's, the, the ads are sort of 
visually well done. I mean, they look like well done ads, and uh, they're they're they advertise them on Dateline NBC and you know some other big mass market uh, settings. Um, in terms of the message. I like to think we can make a positive message without having to make a negative message. Mm -hmm. um, that we can say we believe in this, this, and this. Um, and you can get at the negative comment differently. So, for example, we'll use phrasing like we, we believe in human responsibility independent of supernatural authority. Instead of saying, no God is going to make the choice for you, you've got to do it yourself. Mm -hmm. um, so, is it a little bit more obscure? Yes. So advertising tends to be less subtle. <laughs> They're trying to be less subtle. And in the wake of our latest political election, negative also works. And negative works, right. right. So uh, will it be successful or not? I don't know. Uh, we'll see if they get a wave of new memberships out of it or, or new support. Um, the people that don't like them will still not like them. Um, I, you know, I haven't been sold on the, the negative advertising approach. Um, a few months ago, you may have seen a piece in the paper, there were a series of bus ads that were sponsored by an organization called the Freedom From Religion Foundation. You can tell by their very name. <laughs> they don't just want freedom of religion, they want freedom from religion. Um, they're based in Wisconsin. And uh, they ran a series of ads on the buses that said things like, um, side benefit to atheism, sleeping in on Sunday, or something like that, you know. <laughs> Uh, save or ten percent bonus because <laughs> you don't have to give it away <laughs> to to the church. Um, and again, it's a very sort of in-your-face assaultive uh, kind of a message. And I wrote a, a piece about it on the Tribune's uh, blog on religion, where I, I said it's it's like fighting fire with brimstone. You know that uh, they're attacking you is the response to attack back, or is the response to model the kind of tolerance and respect mm -hmm. that you would like to see coming back at you. I much prefer that second mod, the second example. Um, and I'm willing to clarify where I differ with them, but to do it in a simple, self-confident way that doesn't have to be an assaultive way, I find is a much more attractive stance. Plus, I have to get up on Sunday morning, so I resent that. Um, <laughs> well, that's true. To get here. So. Yes, I, well, right. I mean... <laughs> is it just about being lazy, or is it about alternatives? Yeah, but right. but once your kids are out of Sunday school, oh, then I'm sleeping. Yeah, that's right. No, and you'll take up a new hobby. No, it'll be on the YC for life. <laughs> I think, did we make that change? <laughs> is that the manual? Yeah, did we make that change? <laughs> what? your eyes are always on? That's right. Don't you find it kind of yeah. interesting? They don't go after Islam as well. It's like well, sometimes they do. I mean, they. Yeah. It was a secular student group actually. They came up with the Draw Muhammad Day, oh, yeah. with the right. the idea was to take chalk and draw stick figures and label them Muhammad. Mm -hmm. And actually, the Muslim Student Association yeah. had a better rebuttal to that, which was to take their chalk and draw boxing gloves on it and write the word Ali afterward. <laughs> so then, <laughs> so it's just pictures of Muhammad Ali. <laughs> that, that they definitely won that uh, rhetorical uh, right. joust, but yes, they've they've had that kind of confrontation work too. Um, in the end, you see their responses are not fundamentalist Muslims are not going around waving Qurans or demanding that copies of the Quran be posted in schools or uh, you know, all these kind of issues that they're dealing with in response to the religious right, which are Christian. That's their antagonist and they feel the need to fight back. The challenge is, 
a lot of people who find themselves in a humanist organization came out of a very religious setting, and they had a break. And so their model of their humanism is the anti-other. Mm-hmm. It's the break experience. Uh, and I've had, this, I've had this experience before when I talk to other people like myself who were raised in a more humanistic setting. They don't need to do that. You know, they don't have the same emotional baggage or family baggage as it may be because their parents made that break and now they are very comfortable in their skin as humanists. Um, it's a very different model than uh, the breakaway experience. It's like, the, and I don't mean to sound, make it sound insulting to, to mm-hmm. people who are very religious, but it's like the um, recovering addicts, people who are... Can real, go into other addictions. Real AA, real AA groupies or NA groupies or whatever in terms of... And, and that's necessary for some people like that, and I mm-hmm. fully believe that. But sometimes some of those individuals are very, like, on a crusade against any kind of alcohol for anybody or, or whatever right. it is. And right, right. They're sort of always pound, they're clearly working against something that they've rejected. And, yes. Uh, and, uh, and it often can be very negative or and hostile towards others, so I think that's... If, you, if you've ever read Eric Hoffer's book, The True Believer, which comes from the 1950s, but it's still very relevant, he makes the point that the fanatical communists and the fanatical fascists actually had a lot in common. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's the sort of liberal bourgeois moderate that's the opposite of the fanatic. Just like the fanatic atheist and the fanatic fundamentalist have a lot in common, and it's the one person who doesn't really know and is willing to tolerate other people, that's mm-hmm. in some ways the opposite end of that spectrum, depending on how you mm-hmm. make up the chart. This podcast was recorded and produced by Ken Burke on behalf of Rabbi Shalom and Kol Hadash in conjunction with Repatriation Studios. I'm Ken Burke, and thank you for listening.